Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. In this season of Epiphany, the church basks in the light of Christ revealed to us. And yet simultaneously, we live today in a world divided by difference, riven by power structures that alienate and marginalize. This year, in our series, Voices from the Wilderness, we are returning to three voices that we've heard before, but which continue to call to us. Black theology, indigenous theology, and womanist theology. And today we turn our attention to indigenous theology. As we said a few weeks ago, it would be one thing for us to deliver a series of messages on social justice that exhort us to go forth and solve injustice. But I think that would be a mistake. Because first, we must see the light of God that shines on us from the other, as God listens attentively to the voice of Christ from the wilderness. In showing God's mercy to the oppressed, God has revealed to them in ways the powerful do not know, so that our salvation is wrapped up in listening to their voices. And so in this series, we are purposefully situating ourselves as listeners and learners first, rather than taking the prerogative to fix. And as we said a few weeks ago, this can make us profoundly uncomfortable because it challenges our privilege and decenters white voices. Now this week, as we listen to the voice of Native American or indigenous theology, we have to start by quite literally grounding ourselves in this conversation. This land, this land on which we live and move and have our being, Multnomah County, rests on traditional village sites of the Multnomah, the Kathlamet, the Clackamas, bands of Chinook, the Tualatin, the Kalapuya, the Molala, and many other tribes who made their homes here along the Columbia and Willamette Rivers. The conversation which has been going on between humanity and the creation and the creator in this place has, for the vast majority of its history, been an indigenous conversation and not a Western European one. And yet, what we see in academic, political, and church settings is an almost complete disinterest in listening to indigenous voices. When I studied philosophy in undergrad, uh, you could find courses in Eastern philosophy and religion, uh, Islamic thought, African thought, but though our college was built on land that had once belonged to the Chumash peoples, you could not find a philosophy course on indigenous thought. One sees this in popular culture as well. America is increasingly curious about and open to thoughts from Eastern meditation, Buddhism, yoga, but there is only the very beginnings of curiosity about Native American spirituality and wisdom. Here at Pearl last week, our book discussion was about Robin Wall Kimmerer's lovely book, Braiding Sweetgrass, and that book's wide reception is a hopeful sign, but it's still an outlier. So why is there so little interest in Native voices? 
Well, to begin to answer this, I think we have to look at our local history. Originally, this local land here where we are was home to over 60 tribes of indigenous peoples. But with the coming of Europeans, the late 18th and early 19th centuries brought disease, genocide, military conflicts, dislocation, and rapid change to the indigenous populations of Oregon. By the end of the 18th, the late 18th and the early 19th centuries, only one out of 10 Native Americans survived. It was a literal decimation. By the mid-19th century, most Native Americans in Oregon were forced onto reservations. And in Portland itself, Natives were not allowed to live within our city limits until the 1920s. After World War II, the government took up a policy of what's known as termination under the leadership of Douglas McKay, who was the former governor of Oregon and became the Secretary of the Interior. Termination means revoking tribal sovereignty and government responsibilities to Native peoples, as well as claims to reservation land and unique identity. More than 60 different tribal groups in Oregon were terminated. In fact, Oregon was the state with the highest concentration of terminated tribes. And upon termination, 864,820 acres of, of Native trust land in Oregon was sold like the virgin timber held by the Klamath tribe in South Central Oregon. The consequences continue today. A report on the Native American community in Portland by the Coalition of Communities of Color and Portland State University found that today in Portland, poverty rates in Native American communities are triple those of white communities. Native American youths are charged by police at levels three times higher than the numbers warrant. And whether you're measuring income or poverty, the data deteriorates as you move inward toward Multnomah County. Native Americans incur a hit by living here, while whites gain a perk compared with the national averages. So now, with all that information, let's ask again, why is Native American spirituality of so little interest to a dominant white culture? I think Randy Woodley, who's a professor at Portland Seminary and one of the prominent voices today in Native American Christian theology, captures this tension really well. He writes, when colonizers are confronted rightly with their egregious inhumanity, the pain is shared and doubled. In an instant, this pain transforms itself into guilt. Both the pain of the colonized and the guilt of the colonizers can easily become retreats of inaction. You see, it's extremely difficult to accept our role as colonizers and then to listen to the voices of the colonized. We've long had in America an interest in believing that Native peoples have no wisdom to contribute to our vision of God and our place in the world because to listen would require us to acknowledge the devastation and the inhumanity wrought upon the peoples whose land we now inhabit. But to listen, though painful, I think may be our salvation. First, because an American Christianity that cannot reckon with our history can't change, can't grow, can't repent. But more, while today we can really only gesture at the voice of Native American theologies, what we find in their traditions is a wisdom that our society desperately needs today. As Woodley writes, the Creator is calling us back to experience God's love and care in the created world around us. 
The indigenous peoples of our own lands are the guides and the theological interpreters of this too long awaited journey. In the course of his doctoral studies, Randy Woodley interviewed the, tr the elders of tribes across the country, and what he found there confirmed his hunch. The vast majority of Native peoples have, central to their spirituality, a concept that Woodley calls the Harmony Way. As far as English references go, some tribes talk about this harmony as a way of balance. Some refer to the concept as the beauty way, or others might talk of a good way, or a good road, or a good path. Other tribal groups call it the blessing way. But the majority of Native American peoples tend to recognize this concept in their own tribes and other tribes around them. Another pan-Indian reference to such a harmony way is the red road. In Cherokee, it's called the white path. This harmony way is a vision of life which places balance, reciprocity, and respect for all things as the central components of maintaining the wholeness of our lives in our place. Theologian Tink Tinker illustrates this with a story from a native Christian community preparing for Advent. Heavily dressed for the two feet of snow covering the hillside, a small group of people stood quietly around what looked like a perfect, if rather large, Christmas tree. These were Christian Indians from a variety of tribes and members of an Indian congregation who were engaging in an act of prayer, speaking prayers on behalf of the tree in preparation to cutting it and taking it back with them to the church. The two Indian ministers held tobacco in their hands, ready to offer it back to the Creator, to offer it for the tree of life, to offer it for the four directions, above and below, to offer it in order to maintain the harmony and balance of creation, even in this imminent perpetration of an act of violence. The people came up one by one to the tree to touch it and say their prayers, actually speaking to the tree, speaking consoling words of apology, gratitude, purpose, and promise. They promised the tree that its life would be used in a positive way, a sacred way, and then they asked its permission to take its life for this purpose. For Woodley, the idea of this harmony way parallels with the biblical concept of shalom. Shalom, or peace, is a central concept in the Hebrew scriptures. They both set forth practical steps included within a vision for living. They both require specific action when harmony or shalom is broken. They both have justice, restoration, and continuous right living as their goal. And perhaps most importantly, they both originate as the right path for living being viewed as a gift from the Creator. The context for living out the harmony way, for living out shalom, is the circle of community, which takes in everything. Not just oneself and one's human relations, but all the creatures, plants, the very land, and the geography which has been entrusted to one's care. And indeed, the divine can be seen in and through it all. Because power is manifest in all the things in the world, the sacred can appear at any time, and people are constantly reminded of the presence of deity as they pass by certain rock formations or rivers or groves of trees. Thus, space, rather than time, becomes the evidence of God's presence in the world in an immediate manner. In the harmony way, one is placed, situated in a particular land as a gift and an expression of the divine. And it's our responsibility as humans to live well and in balance with all around us and to maintain that harmony 
And so the symbol developed in native tribes across the continent to explain this community of creation was the circle, balanced, egalitarian, encompassing the individual, the tribe, and the humanity in all of creation. In its form as the medicine wheel, uh, it's a circle with two lines forming across horizontally and vertically across the whole. So the circle symbolizes the four directions of the earth and the four manifestations of divinity that come from those four directions. At one level of meaning, the four directions hold together the same balance of the nations of two-leggeds, four-leggeds, wingeds, and living, moving things. So in this model of the universe, human beings lose their status of primacy and dominion because rather than seeing the earth as existing to serve humans, for native peoples, each nation has an understanding that they were placed into a relationship with a particular territory by spiritual forces outside themselves and thus have an enduring responsibility for that territory. Just as the earth, especially the earth in that particular place, has a responsibility toward the people who live there. And likewise, the two-legged people in that place have a spatially related responsibility toward all the people who share that space with them. The people who are animals or birds or plants or rocks or rivers or mountains and the like. And many elders in Indian communities are quick to add that of all the created, of all our relations, it is we two-legged alone who seem to be confused as to our responsibility toward the whole. Within the circle of community, all that exists must be treated with respect and cultivated into wholeness. Shalom is communal, holistic, and tangible. There is no private or partial shalom. The whole community must have peace, or no one has it. This circle of creation, or as Woodley calls it, the community of creation, is offered by Native American theologians today as an alternative metaphor for Christian thought to what we've called the kingdom of God. Now, in its original setting, Jesus' use of the word kingdom was revolutionary because it expressed an overturning of empire. The Greek word basileia, kingdom, is the same word used for the Roman Empire. And so to mark out God's rule of peace is to mark out an alternative reality to Roman occupation. But that nuance has been mostly lost to Western Christianity. And rather, we've tended to take over metaphors of kingship and kingdom as hierarchical and as justification for colonization and the dominance over non-Western, non-European, non-Christian peoples. And so, Woodley writes, may I suggest that maintaining the imperial metaphor has not served Christianity very well. I'd like to see us to move from a first century military framework of king and kingdom. Given our history and the age in which we now live, new metaphors might be more helpful in helping us find a better path in following Christ. I suggest a greater context might be the community of creation. Indeed, as native peoples living under the colonized, under an oppressive occupation, the metaphor of kingdom and Christ as Lord, writes theologians Clara Kidwell, Homer Noli, and Tink Tinker, this is the one metaphor used for the Christ event that is ultimately unacceptable and even hurtful to American Indian peoples. And this is more the case because the Native American conception of divinity has no analog to the concept of Lord in its hierarchical sense. 
that's so common to Western Christianity. Rather, the divine is encountered throughout the circle, expressed and present in all that exists. The Osage people of Oklahoma, speaking of Wakonda, the divine, would say, there is one God and his presence is in all things and everywhere. We say that a tree is Wakonda because in it also Wakonda resides. So the community of creation, the circle, is where humanity encounters the divine through seeking the harmony and well-being of all. Now all of this is barely a glance at the depth of insight that Native American theologies hold for us to consider. But I'd like to highlight three different suggestions, some invitations for Western Christianity that come from these voices. First, we are being invited by our elders to our own healing. In terms of living in, knowing, and seeing the good of this place, Indigenous peoples have by far the longer experience and more intimate knowledge of this land. As the ecological and societal impacts of our way of life become increasingly and alarmingly clear, the Western church must take a position as the younger sibling, as Woodley suggests. Non-Indigenous people, those who currently wield the power, need the opportunity to change their worldview and save the planet. It is time for the younger brothers and sisters on the land to learn from their elder brothers and sisters just how to fall in love with the land once again. I would add there that Robin Wall Kimmerer points out that the tribal people see themselves as the younger siblings of the plants who have been here much, much longer than any of us have. And so we as the Western peoples are younger siblings to those who are the younger siblings of creation. And that's the way we can begin to learn, again, how to love our land. So first, we're being invited to be the younger siblings at a table where we learn a new way of living. Secondly, we, by recovering a vision of salvation as harmony between all things, uh, we can restore this community of creation, including the land. In the history of Western Christianity, salvation has come to be primarily a matter of individuals avoiding divine retribution and making it into heaven, right? That's the big deal that everyone talks about. But indigenous theologies remind us that the longer and older tradition of Judaism and Christianity is shalom, the harmony way, which sees salvation as primarily not getting into heaven, but the restoration of peace of all things. And so this gives us a vision of salvation which encompasses more than just our individual or just our human interests. The Navajo speak of hotso, which is a term generally translated as beauty, but Gary Witherspoon defines this as the ideal environment of beauty, harmony, and happiness. Isn't that beautiful? This ideal environment of beauty and harmony and happiness. And the ideal for harmony entails fulfilling one's responsibilities to the community. What would it do to our practices as a church if we believed that salvation was not attained until we created an environment of beauty, harmony, and happiness through the diligent pursuit of balance and reciprocity for all creation? I, I think that would look quite a bit different from a Christianity obsessed with guilt and punishment and the need to get out of this world to heaven. Finally, 
What inspires me most from sitting at the feet of the Native American theologians is a vision of spirituality as dwelling well in the divine community. We began today by acknowledging that we live in a time that's riven by differences, power, gender, race, class. And we also live in a time of isolation, dislocation, and pervasive loneliness. What if we saw this not as because people haven't lived up to Christianity or people haven't become Christian or Christianity is failing, but rather more provocatively, what if our Western theology has been perfectly crafted to give us the result we have arrived at? What if this is what Western theology does? Our elders in this land, our indigenous peoples, may be offering us the key to return to a truer and more relational, more communal following of Christ than we've been offered by our churches. Randy Woodley speaks about the Sioux concept, uh, this concept that represents the acknowledgement of this relationship, Mitiaski Oyesen. A translation of Mitikuye, sorry, Mitikuye Oyesen would be better read for the above me and below me and all around me things. That is for all my relations. It is this understanding of interrelatedness, of balance and mutual respect of the different species in the world that characterizes what we might call Indian people's greatest gifts to American Europeans and to the American European understanding of creation. And I would add to our understanding of life with God and with one another. So today, may we hear this invitation. May we find ourselves once again living within the community of creation. And may we be the younger siblings who learn from those who have been here much longer. Let us pray. Creator of all, lead us on your harmony way until we find balance and justice for all that your hands have crafted. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.